I'm James Bryan Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 69. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. And that comes from Colossians 3 verse 2 where the Apostle Paul says, set your minds on things above. Setting our minds on things above, on good thoughts, uplifting, encouraging thoughts is super, super important. I know it's something I try to do every day. And we are definitely living in a season right now with the coronavirus, when we are having to really think about our thinking. Today's special podcast is an opportunity for me to offer some words of hope and some pastoral advice in an uncertain time. It's not fully unprecedented. We have been through many things as a people. We've been through plagues and wars and recessions and the Dust Bowl, and the list goes on and on, 9-11. We've struggled together through a lot of things, to be sure, but this one is unique in its own way, but it's definitely a time of uncertainty. And so I want us to think about where we want to put our minds at a time like this. I think more than ever, we need some words of hope to put our minds on, and that's what I want to do in today's podcast. So we're not that far away from. Ash Wednesday, when Lent started, we are in the middle of the season of Lent. And who knew back on Ash Wednesday how much we were going to actually be giving up for Lent? I mean, I don't think anybody had a clue what this season would look like for us. And yet, that is the reality of where we are right now. And I think it's a time when we want to keep a stiff upper lip. We want to, you know, keep calm and carry on, as the Brits say. We want to be stoic and that sort of thing. I think it's important at a time like this to just ask ourselves and be gentle with ourselves and say, you know, how are we feeling? How are you feeling? Are you taking any time to process your feelings? Because it's a time of anxiety. It's a time of some frustration and anger. We're feeling a lot of things right now, to be sure. I think of the line from Shakespeare's King Lear, the weight of this sad time, we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. It is a sad time, and we feel the weight of this sad time. And I think Shakespeare was right. There are times like this that we need to speak what we feel, not just what we ought to say. And so I want to share my own feelings and some of my own thoughts as I've been processing through this very interesting time that we're living in. Because it is a time of uncertainty, but I think it's also a time for hope. I believe that we can set our minds on hopeful thoughts, and I believe that we can also see this time in a new way as a season of possibility for growth and well-being, as counterintuitive as that sounds but I really believe that it's true, and I'll explain why. 
On this podcast, I've talked about hope before. Hope is a Christian virtue, to be sure. And we are people of hope as Christians. So right away, I just want to say, well, what is hope? Hope, by its definition, is this, certainty in a good future. We use the word hope a lot. I know when I was writing the book, The Magnificent Journey, I had a chapter on hope. And, and while I was writing that chapter and you know, spending a couple of months thinking about hope, I just noticed how often we say it. And most of the time, when we use the word hope in our language, we use it to mean kind of wishful thinking, like, uh, I, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope it does rain, or uh, I hope my sports team wins. And that's really just wishful thinking. Like, we don't have any real confidence um, that it's going to happen. We just would like it to be. But biblically, hope is certainty in a good future. And that certainty rests on the reality of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and defeated sin and death. And that is the symbol of hope. We know that we are now people who live in the eighth day. I got to be careful when you say that, the eighth day, because the way the Jewish calendar worked was Sunday was the first day of the week and Saturday is the seventh day and the day of the Sabbath, right? Oh, Jesus was killed on a Friday, descended into the depths of experienced alienation and rescued prisoners, as the early church would say, on the Saturday. But then on Sunday, he rose from the dead. And so the early Christians said, well, know what? This wasn't just the first day of the week. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it's actually the eighth day. It's a whole new day. We're living in the eighth day of creation. So we as Christians understand the universe in a different way. We realize I'm living in the eighth day, and it's based on the resurrection. And because of that, I have hope. Because I believe in a God who has defeated all of the enemies, a good God who is in control. And so that's why I can be filled with hope even in a time of uncertainty. That's a primary reason why. But there's some other reasons that I'm also filled with hope at a time like this. And some of them may be surprising. Some may think, well, normally Christians don't talk about that as a reason for hope. So let me just give a few reasons why it's a season for hope. And the first one is this, information and science. Here's the deal. We know what is happening. It's a virus. It's got a name, right? COVID-19, the coronavirus. We know what it is and we know what it's not. We know that this isn't, you know, some form of divine punishment that we have to somehow get right with God and do some sort of repentance to make this stop. Now, people have thought that historically during plagues, like in the Black Plague in the Middle Ages, they thought God was punishing them. So they got on their knees and whipped themselves and, and repented because they were sure that if they could just get right with God, that the, this plague would go away. What they didn't know was it was caused by fleas in rats. And so they just didn't know, right? Here's the thing. We know what this is, and we know how to contain it. And we are living in an unprecedented age in terms of information. We get so much information so fast. And that information that can often frighten us also has the potential to save us because we are 
asked to do a lot of things, a lot of restrictions, and it's uncomfortable. But we know that if we do it, it will flatten the curve. That's the big popular phrase right now, right? Flatten the curve. Do everything we can. But by doing that, we can allow medicine and science to do its work, right? If we can flatten that curve, then we're giving a chance for this to come to a swifter end and save lives. So I do have some confidence, actually, in science, in medicine, in the information that we've been given. A second reason that I'm hopeful uh, are people. And again, this is maybe counterintuitive when you think of it from a Christian perspective, because some people will teach that human beings are just totally rotten and depraved to the core and can do no good. And this is a season when people are going to be at their worst. And you know what? We probably will see some of that. We'll probably see people behaving badly. That's typical of times like this. But you know what we'll also see, and we are seeing, people shining. We shine best in darkness. And even though we are broken and fallen and sinful people, we are also made in God's image. And the better angels of our nature come forth in times like these. People are doing pretty amazing things for each other. We literally are all in this together. We use that phrase a lot. But this is a season when we are recognizing we are all in this together because this virus doesn't care about race or creed or gender, nothing. Everything that might separate humans, it doesn't. We, we literally are all in this together. And I believe that people will do wonderful things. So I'm confident in that. But certainly I am mostly filled with hope because of the God I've come to know through Jesus. When I was first at a seminary, I was pastoring a church, and the church went through a massive, like a problem. I mean, it was, it was a devastating time for this church. And I was asked to pastor this church at a horrific time. And I called up Dallas Willard, and I said, Dallas, I do not know what to do. I'm way over my head here. I mean, this is a, a congregation of older, wiser people, and here I am, this rookie kid trying to be the pastor. And I said, I don't even know how to preach. I don't know what to preach on. And Dell said, well, you need to preach on Acts 27. And I said, okay, what's specifically? He goes, the story of Paul's shipwreck. And I went, oh, that's encouraging. Okay, great. <laughs> what do you? And he said, no, that's the story where Paul knew that the ship was going to wreck, and it did, but he had told the people that it was going to be okay and that um, none of them would even lose a hair from their heads. That's from Acts 27:34. I said, okay, so I should give a sermon on that. And Dal said, no, you should preach for a month on that story. I was like, a month? And so I did because, you know, Dallas said it, I should do it. And it turned out to be really, really helpful because it's a profound story. And it's a story that, you know, God was with them. And that's really what this is all about, right? A season when we want to remember that God is with us. N.T. Wright said, Hope is settled, unwavering confidence that God will not leave us or forsake us, but will always have more in store for us than we can ask or imagine. So it's not just that God is going to be with us, but that God can do something fantastic in a season like this that's even bigger and better than we can imagine, which is a wonderful thing. But that's the kind of God that we know. Houston Smith 
was considered the, the leading expert in the world uh, on the world's religions. I taught world religions for 23 years, and I used his textbook called The World's Religions for all of those years because I never found a better one. Houston Smith was raised in a missionary family. He did identify as a Christian, though he embraced the wisdom of all traditions, as he would say. Um, fascinating guy. And he died only a few years ago at the age of 97. And I, I remember when I found this out, it just really blew me away. They asked him, here he is at the end of his life, and they said, what is the one thing that you know? And this is what he said, we are in good hands. I love that. After, you know, 70 plus years of being an, a, a professor of the world's religions and studying and traveling the globe many times and seeing people of different faiths and so forth, What's the one thing, Houston Smith, that you walk away with knowing we're in good hands? Which is just a beautiful, beautiful truth, right? And, of course, Dallas Willard, who I just mentioned, often said, and here's the quote I love from Dallas, For those alive in the kingdom of God, the world we live in is a perfectly safe place to be. Now, that's a shocking statement, right? I remember the first time I heard Dallas say it, and I thought, whoa, that's a big statement. How can you say the world we live in is a perfectly safe place to be? But what he's saying, notice the first part of that, for those alive in the kingdom of God, living an interactive life with God. Because, as Dallas would teach, we do live in the strong and unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as it says in Hebrews. Because the kingdom of God is never in trouble. The kingdom of God, it doesn't even wobble, right? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. But the kingdom doesn't even wobble, man. It's just unshakable. And that's why Dallas can make such a bold proclamation. I also was thinking the other day of Julian of Norwich, who lived through the Black Plague. She was born in 1342, died in 1416. And she wrote what is the, the oldest known book written by a woman. Her reflections on divine love is beautiful. But she has this line that's my favorite from her. And this is what she said. This is, what, this is sort of a, her version of Houston Smith. What, what is the one thing you know, Julian? And she said this, All is well, and all is well, and all manner of things shall be well. See, those are words of hope. And yet, this situation that we find ourselves in now is not something any of us planned for. I know how life can take a drastic turn on a dime. When my wife Megan was pregnant with our second child, Madeline, life as we knew it was exactly what we had expected. Uh, our son Jacob was four and Megan was pregnant with Madeline and things had gone well in the pregnancy. We knew the gender. We, were, we had everything planned out, even her name. Everything was great. But after some more testing, uh, it was discovered that she probably had something called a translocation. And that's what she had. Part of her chromosomes had switched, and she wasn't growing and developing. And they didn't think she was going to have much of a chance at life and may not even live very long. She did survive the birth, and she lived for a couple of years. And during those times, we suddenly had a different kind of life. Like life as we expected was just turned inside out. We suddenly were people with a special needs child, and that changed everything for us. And we learned how to live into that reality. 
And someone gave us this poem by Emily Pearl Kingsley that meant a lot to me and I still think of. Um, Emily Pearl Kingsley was uh, this woman who worked um, for Sesame Street in the 70s, and she also had a child who was special needs. And she had been writing and journaling and reflecting, and she came up with this poem that's really kind of a metaphor, and um, it's called Welcome to Holland. Her introduction to it is, she said, I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. Well, it's like this, and here's the poem, Welcome to Holland. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans, the Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess comes in and says, Welcome to Holland. Holland, you say. What do you mean Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They landed in Holland and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy new guidebooks, and you must learn a whole new language, and you'll meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy, but after you've been there a while, and you catch your breath, you look around, and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, and Holland has tulips, and Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever, ever go away because the loss of that dream is a very, very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't go to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. I think about this poem because it reminds me that life does throw us really unexpected things, things that we didn't plan for, and they end up being our new reality. Just like having a special needs child, you didn't plan for it, and it's a new reality. But there can be wonderful things about that. In the same sense, none of us plan for this, and it is a time of uncertainty and some fear and some inconveniences, and all of that is real, and we name those feelings. But it's also a time to say, what could this season be for me? What could we learn? How could we grow? What could be those unexpected gifts that come in a season like this. So I want to offer some pastoral advice on what to do or how to enjoy this season as if it were a trip to Holland. Here's the first thing I want to say. We've been given the gift of margin. Margin is the commodity of which few have enough. Now, by margin, I'm referring to having extra. So, Margin in terms of money is getting to the end of the month and having money. 
margin in terms of physical health is getting to the top of the stairs and still being able to breathe. Margin in terms of time is getting what you need to get done and still having extra time. That's what margin is. And we live, for the most part, certainly in the Western world, marginless lives. Lives where we fill up our calendars all the way to the edge. Like, you know, imagine a piece of paper with no margin. There's writing from the top to the bottom to the sides. And that's what our lives look like. We fill them up so much. And most people's mantra is, I'm so busy. And here's the thing I've learned, because I obviously teach and write in spiritual formation, so I've reflected a lot on this, and I've studied it, and here's, this is not just Jim's guesses, these, these are actually statistically proven. The three things that we stop doing when we don't have margin in our lives are, first, time with God, second, self-care, and third, investing in significant relationships. So when we don't have margin in our lives, the first thing to go is time with God. It's the first thing we drop off. We just like, well, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read the scriptures or read devotional literature or find ways that I personally connect with God. It goes right out the window. And then second, self-care, which involves getting enough sleep, enough rest, being able to exercise and um, buy and cook good, healthy food, right? We end up just eating fast food. I mean, they literally call it fast food because it's fast. Is it good? Maybe. I don't know. Is it good for you? Probably not, but it's fast. And so self-care, second thing out the window. And then third is investing in significant relationships, being with the people that we really love, setting aside time to be present with people, to listen, to have conversation, to connect. It's the third thing that drops off. Now, what's interesting about this list, time with God, self-care, and investing in significant relationships, those three things are arguably the most important things in human life. And they're the first things we drop off. So here we are in a season when we have given, been given the gift of margin. It's frankly been imposed. <laughs> for many of us, it's not even an option. Like, we didn't choose it. But this is a season, and we don't know for how long, when we have an opportunity to pray, to read books that we wanted to read, to be with people, to connect, to make some wonderful food and have some meals together and be with each other. And while there are limitations on how many people we can be with for a while and all that sort of thing, they haven't completely banned having any kind of relationships with people. Thanks be to God. But the truth is we can still connect with each other. We can be with each other in significant ways and we can do all of these things that are so important because we have been given this. So I'm looking at this season now and saying, you know, it's kind of like um, an, a sabbatical. It's kind of like a gift of some time to set aside and focus on some things that I've wanted to do. And now I have time to do it. So I would encourage you to really see this not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity because it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a chance for us to invest in things that have lasting meaning, and it's a gift. I want to close with one of my favorite sections from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563, so it's this ancient document. It's a beautiful 
document. A, a catechism, catechesis means question and answer. It's a form of education. So the idea is people were being educated in the faith by there would be a question, and then you would memorize the answer. One of my favorite parts of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, falls under the category of this, which is a question. It is, what is your only hope in life and in death? So here is the answer the Heidelberg Catechism gives to that question. What is your only hope in life and in death? Here it is. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you'll join me next week for episode 70. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. And my hope is that one day, if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be things above.